All right, Genesis 15, if you want to join me there. As we continue our study through the book of Genesis together, we left off last time. Remember, Abram had just rounded up 318 of his trained servants in his household, really to kind of go on a rescue mission for his nephew Lot, who had been taken captive as a result of a conflict that we saw took place between uh, five kings, uh, eastern uh, kings there in the plains of Jordan, and then the four, uh, or excuse me, the five kings that were in the plains of Jordan, the four eastern kings, and this conflict arose. And remember, as a result of that, uh, Lot, who had chosen to go down to the area of Sodom, was then taken captive. And word gets back to Abram that Lot is now captive and is a prisoner. And Abram's heart is moved with love and compassion for him as his family member. And Abram rounds up his servants and goes after those kings in pursuit as far as Dan. He travels almost 100 plus miles north, overtakes them in the evening and overthrows them in an invasion at night, delivers Lot and all those who are with him. And as he's making his way back now from the victory of the battle, remember it said the king of Sodom, where we left off at the end of chapter 14, comes out to Abram and basically says to him at the end of chapter 14 there, he says, the king of Sodom, verse 21, to Abram, give me the persons and take the goods for yourself. And remember we saw Abram's response to that as the king of Sodom said, hey, let me have the souls. You take all the material possessions. Here, take the spoils, be enriched. I'll give you all the material wealth that you can take to yourself. And Abram, verse 22, said to the king of Sodom, this ungodly king, I've raised my hand to the Lord God most high, the possessor of heaven and earth. He says that I will take nothing from a thread to a sandal strap and that I will not take anything that is yours. Again, the reason why, lest you should say I have made Abram rich. So we left off with Abram coming back from this battle. It was quite an amazing triumph. And then having this tremendous opportunity to be enriched by the king of Sodom, but yet declining. And telling the king of Sodom, listen, lest you be able to say that some worldly king has made me rich or that I've been prospered or blessed because some man or some wealthy individual in the world gave something to me, he said, no thanks, I'll trust God who's the possessor of heaven and earth to provide for me. And he says, I don't want to take anything from you, from a thread, he says, to a sandal strap. Not one thing, and he was zealous for the glory of God. He didn't want God's glory to be robbed in the situation in his life. He wanted to trust God to bless, trust God to provide, and he declines what would be a pretty prosperous offer. He turns down a pretty incredible opportunity to be enriched, and he says, but yet I don't ever want you to have the opportunity to say, I've made Abram rich. Now, it's on the heels of that experience that chapter 15 tells us after these things, the things that we just looked at in chapter 14, after these things, the word of the Lord, it says, came to Abram in a vision saying, do not be afraid, Abram, I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. So after these events, we read here, the word of the Lord comes to Abram. First time that phrase shows up in the Bible. We'll see it many times throughout Scripture. But here, the first time we get it in the book of Genesis, the word of the Lord. That is a special word from God, a personalized message. Of course, we have the word of the Lord, the, the scriptures as a whole, that we have the canon of scriptures, the word of God. But there are times when the word of the Lord, uh, that special word, that timely word and season, a personal message where God speaks something to our hearts and he gives us some special um, you know, indication of a promise or he gives us some encouragement or some word of correction, whether it be through a prophetic message or here in this situation, in a personalized sense, it came to Abram. We're told here the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Now, important as we see this idea of a vision on occasion in the Bible, a vision is basically the same thing as a dream, uh, only you're awake. In other words, when the Bible speaks of a vision, a lot of times we throw the term around in our spiritual lingo of the Lord's really given me a vision to do this. You know, I, I really have a vision to you know, reach 
young children. I ever really have a vision to reach the youth, or I have a vision to minister to this particular community. And we know what we mean by that when we say that. But when the Bible says the word of the Lord came to Abram or Saul or whoever in a vision, it's speaking of a literal vision, whereby in essence he's seeing something and hearing something just in the same way we would experience and kind of relate to a dream, the only difference being in an awakened state, that somehow the realm of the Spirit is opened up. In a sense, I almost kind of equate it in my mind. It's like God pulls back the veil. He pulls back the curtain of the natural and allows us to see into the spiritual realm or to see into the supernatural realm. And we need to always remember these two things somehow coexist. There is this physical realm, this tangible realm, this realm that we live in. But at the same time, the Bible is very clear. There is a spiritual realm. There's an eternal realm. And somehow these two are, are coexisting how exactly that happens, but we see times in Scripture where God kind of pulls back the veil and lets us see into the spiritual. And here, it seems that's what takes place as God now gives this vision to Abram and speaks a personal word that apparently Abram needed to hear. Abram, do not be afraid. He says, I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. First time in the Bible where God says, do not be afraid. And how many times do we see that throughout Scripture? which indicates to us that God knows that we all have a tendency at times to become fearful, that it is a common human tendency to become alarmed in situations, to become fearful of certain things, to be anxious, to be worried. God would not tell us continuously throughout the word of God, be not afraid, do not be afraid, if he didn't expect us on occasion to become fearful, that things wouldn't alarm us. Apparently, in this situation, Abram is wrestling with fear in his heart, and God sees that, and therefore God's trying to console him. Now, it makes total sense if you take into context chapter 15, verse 1, after these things, why God might be saying to Abram in a very personal way in a vision, Abram, don't be afraid. I'm your shield. I'm your exceedingly great reward. Think about what Abram just did. Abram just took 318 armed servants and a few other individuals who partnered with him, and he went in pursuit of a confederation of four kings. He overtook them in a night invasion. He rooted them. He stole all their captives. And no doubt he's thinking to himself, what if those four kings regroup and realize who came in a night invasion with this little militia team? <laughs> And overtook them and took away all their captives and spoils. And what if they double back those Mideastern kings and they come on a revenge mission and come back and attack us? And, and how he would be concerned realizing the limitation of his own ranks and his own military force that he would be fearful and kind of feel a little bit vulnerable at this point. And where he could no doubt be afraid and understanding why God would say, Abram, listen, I am your shield. Abram, I'm your protection. I'm your shield, I'm your protection. He says, not only am I for your protection, but he says, I'm also your provision. I am your protection, I'm your shield. I will shield you, I will stand. He doesn't just say, I'll give you a shield. He says, I am your shield. And you know what, that's a wonderful thing to know, that God doesn't just give us a shield to protect us. God is willing to say, look, I am your shield. In other words, God says, I'm stepping in between you and your enemies, you know, in the same way that any father to protect their, their child or their wife would, would step in between them and whatever would cause danger to harm them, God says, look, I'm your shield. You don't have to be afraid. I'll stand in between you and what it is or who it is that can harm you somehow. That's a really secure thing to know that God says, I'll surround you and I'll be your shield. I'll be your protection, whatever it is. And that God tells Abram as well, and I'll also be your provision. I'm your exceedingly great reward. Because what did Abram just do? What did he turn down from the king of Sodom? A whole lot of reward, right? <laughs> he just said no to an opportunity whereby he could have been very well enriched. Not only has he already left Ur of the Chaldees and all those other things behind and traveled like a pilgrim across to the land of Canaan and he's kind of living in tents and, and, and now he's had this opportunity that was set right before him to be enriched rather quickly by the king of Sodom and Abram declined the offer. He declined the opportunity. And like many of us, you have to wonder if he's having maybe second thoughts afterwards saying, boy, 
maybe I should have took that opportunity from the king of Sodom there. I mean, I could have just took half of it. or and, and how he might potentially be worrying and concerned. And God says, look, Abram, I'm your reward. You don't need his reward. I'll be your reward. I'll be your provision. And how wonderful to know that the Lord is our protection and the Lord himself becomes our provision. Later on, God uh, will, will reveal himself in the scriptures in Genesis chapter 22 as, as the Lord, our provision, that he is God who provides. That, that, and how wonderful that you know, God revealing himself you know, as Jehovah Jireh there, the Lord, our provision, and how God at times in compound names reveals himself to become whatever we need, Jehovah Jireh, the Lord, our provision. You know, Jehovah Nisi, the Lord, our banner. In Jehovah Shalom, the Lord, our peace. And whatever we need, God becomes. And here Abram was realizing that God was both his protection and his provision as well. Verse 2, as Abram hears this, he then says, Lord God, what will you give me, he says, seeing I go childless and the heir of my house, he says, is Eliezer of Damascus. And then Abram said, look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. So Abram's still struggling with concern over the fulfillment of this promise that God had given to him. Remember, God had told him that his descendants were going to be more numerous than the stars in the sky. And yet at this point, Abram and Sarah are still struggling with barrenness. And Abram says, Lord... I hear what you're saying, that you're my exceedingly great reward. But he says, Lord, the thing that matters to me more than anything is the thing that's not happening. The one desire of my heart, Lord, the one thing that, that really is, is most meaningful to me that I want to see fulfilled in my life, Lord, that's the one thing that's not happening still. He says, it seems to me that as I'm still childless, that the heir of my house and all these possessions and even everything you give to me, if you do, he says, I don't even have a son that I can give it to. He says, I'm going to have to give it to sort of my chief of staff, one of my chief servants, Eliezer, in my house. And he says, you've given me no offspring. An heir is something that I don't even possess at this point. God, you've still never fulfilled your promise. You've still never fulfilled what your word was to me. Verse 4, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him saying, this one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. And then he brought him outside again, look what God does again, and says, look now toward heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. And to this day still with many telescopes we know that that's not possible it's not even a possible thing and he says look toward heaven count the stars if you're able to number them and he said so shall your descendants be so here's abram and he's almost just sort of you know relinquishing the hope that somehow he's going to have an heir and he's saying you know what god it seems to me that my heir and who I give everything to, is, it's just it's going to have to be one of the servants in my household because Sarah and I are getting up in age and, and we're still barren and, and it seems like that I guess things are just going to have to happen this way instead of the way that you're speaking to me that they're going to happen. And what does God do? God, God reaffirms to Abram the promise once again in his life and he says, Abram, no, this one shall not be your heir. Abram, I'm not going to work through a substitute. And sometimes I think we can have a tendency to do that. The Lord speaks to us about something that he wants to do in our lives, and we don't see it happening. And therefore, it's almost as if we relinquish the possibility that God could still do exactly what God said he's going to do. So we sort of present to God another option. And we say, all right, Lord, I guess I'm going to have to just relinquish the hope that that could happen. I guess it'll just have to, to be this instead. And God says, no, that's not the way it's going to happen. It's going to happen exactly the way I said it's going to happen. And he says, this one's not going to be your heir, but one who will be from your own body shall be your heir. In fact, again, God confirms and reaffirms again his calling and promise. Look toward heaven, he says, and he says, your descendants are going to be as numerous as possible to count the stars in heaven. So God speaks of this promise, which almost sounds impossible. It sounds miraculous if it weren't God himself who were the one that sang it. So God speaks to Abram regarding his seed and the multiplication of his seed. 
And as he hears this promise of God, the word of the Lord given to him, verse 6 says, And Abram believed in the Lord, and God, he accounted it to him for righteousness. So as Abram hears the promise of God given to him, regarding God's fulfillment of what he was going to accomplish in Abram's life, it says that Abram believed the Lord, believed the word of the Lord, believed the promise of God. And here we have this interesting statement, and God accounted it to him, that is his faith and belief in the word of the Lord, the promise of God, God accounted it to him for righteousness. And in Abram now here, very important verse, Genesis 15, 6, God now establishes the spiritual pattern or the spiritual protocol of receiving a righteous standing before God as the result of our faith in his promise and in his word. God now establishes this with Abraham, that the pattern and protocol to receive a righteous standing before a holy God would be received by our faith in his promise or in his word. In fact, this very verse, the Lord believed, or he believed the Lord and it was accounted to him for righteousness in his standing. That verse is quoted three times in the New Testament and every time used to build on the teaching of the doctrine of justification by faith, by faith alone, that God here, it says, he accounted it to Abraham. The idea is that God deposited into Abram's bank account the righteous standing that he would now have before God as the result of his simple belief in God and the word that God had given to him. It's an, it's an accounting term that God deposited or imputed into his account righteousness as his standing as the result of this. Paul picks up on this idea in Romans chapter 4 discussing this concept of how we as Christians have a righteous standing before a holy God by our faith alone in Jesus Christ and the finished work of Jesus and our belief in the simple message of the gospel that we're saved by grace through faith. It's not of works, lest any man should boast, but that we have a righteous standing by our belief alone. Paul says this in Romans 4, verses 3 to 5. He says, what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as a debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. So this is such a fundamental understanding in relation to how we have a right standing before God. That we don't do something to contribute through our works or our efforts or our labors. When Jesus died on the cross, he said, it is finished. He didn't say it's almost finished and you take it from here. When Jesus died on the cross, he said, it is finished. They asked Jesus on one occasion, they said to him, what must we do to do the works of God? John chapter 6. And Jesus said, this is the work of God. Singular, the work of God. To believe upon him who the Father has sent. And the Bible teaches, and especially good to familiarize yourself with chapters 3 and 4 and even 5 of Romans, this important understanding that we become righteous before a holy God by our simple faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ upon the cross. That though we are sinful, that as we put our trust and we believe upon the truth of the gospel message that Jesus died on the cross for our sins and he rose from the dead, and that is God's explicit pathway to have entrance into eternal life by believing upon the finished work of his son, that when we choose to believe that by faith, that truth and promise of God's word, that God deposits into your spiritual bank account a standing of righteousness. It's almost as if when we start out before God, here's our spiritual bank account, and we have a debt of sin, a major debt of sin. And the moment we believe in Jesus Christ and the truth of the gospel message, God takes away the debt of sin, so he takes away the debt of sin. The blood of Jesus forgives our debt of sin. The bank account comes back to zero. Now that sounds pretty marvelous. Praise the Lord. I'm out of debt. I'm out of spiritual debt. My sin debt has been wiped away. But the Bible teaches more than that. The Bible says God cancels our debt of sin, forgives us through the blood of Jesus, and then he deposits into your bank account all of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says that God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, 
to become sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. In other words, there's a great exchange that happened. Jesus took all of our sin upon himself as the innocent, sinless one. And as the result of our faith in him, he then gives us all of his righteousness so that when God looks at you in your faith in Jesus Christ, he sees you positionally, like in a judicial sense as a judge, he sees you robed, covered, clothed in the righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ. That's your position by faith in Jesus. That's what justification by faith means, that God declares and sees you righteous, that God accounts it to you as righteousness by your faith in his son, Jesus Christ. Paul says the same in Galatians. Let me read you the verses from there. Galatians 3, Paul says, Just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness, therefore know that only those who are of faith are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached, listen, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. Later in that same chapter, in verse 26 of chapter 3 in Galatians, Paul says, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And in the 29th verse he says, And if you are Christ's, listen, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So, in essence, we, by our faith, just like Abraham's faith here, we become, it says, sons of Abraham. Not natural sons in the sense that we have a Jewish heritage, but we become spiritual sons and daughters of Abraham in the sense that he is the father of faith. He is the spiritual representative of a seed, of a, a spiritual race, a spiritual you know, uh, people who understand how to become righteous before God by their faith alone in Jesus Christ. And we become heirs by our faith as well. So interesting that as God says to Abram, look now toward heaven and count the stars if you're able to number them, so shall your descendants be. And then God says next, that he believed that and was accounted to him for righteousness, I think verse 5 is a reference not just alone specifically to the descendants of the, the, the Jewish nation of Israel, but I think God is speaking further out because of what we see there represented in verse 6 of the innumerable amount of spiritual sons and daughters of Abraham who would believe by faith in Jesus Christ's finished work and would be accounted righteous before God by putting their trust in Jesus, even as Abram believed the word of the Lord in that day, setting that pattern for us to be heirs according to promise, just like Abraham himself. Well, verse 7, it says, And then he said to him, I am the Lord, who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to inherit it. So again, God's reaffirming his promise to Abraham. God gives the promise, and many times when our heart's discouraged and we're worried and weary, God, are you going to do it? Is it going to come to pass? God lovingly condescends and he reaffirms this promise to strengthen our faith, to keep us on the path of believing in what ultimately he will do. So God, again, as we've seen before, reminds Abram, listen, I'm the one. He says, I brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans. Abram, I'm the one who called you out of where you were to bring you where you are. It wasn't your idea, Abram. It wasn't your idea to depart from where you were to, to get where you are now. I'm the one who drew you out of your past and brought you to the place where you are presently. And he says, I brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans for a reason, not to leave you and abandon you, and to not finish my process in your life, he says, but to give you this land to inherit it. Again, God reassuring us very clearly who the land was given to. It was given to Abraham. It was given to Abraham, who was the father of the Jewish nation, of the nation of Israel. And God here declaring again who the land belongs to. It doesn't matter what the UN says. It doesn't matter what anybody else says. God's very clear who the land belongs to. It's his land and who he gave it to. We see again here to give you, Abram, this land to inherit it. And Abram said, Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit it? In other words, Lord, 
okay, I believe you, but how do I know, know this is going to come to pass? Can you give me an indication, a, a sense of assurance with these things? So God said to him, verse 9, Bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, and a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And then he brought out all these to him, cut them in two, down the middle, and placed each piece opposite the other. And he did not, it says, however, cut the birds in two. So Abram does something, as God directs him now, which would be completely understandable. This in that day was what they would call to cut covenant. You know, we say today, hey, we're going to cut a deal. Let's cut a good deal together. And in this day, they took that quite literally. You know, <laughs> this, was, this was before the days of uh, lawyers and lots of paperwork and attorneys and contracts. Uh, this was how they made a contract in that day. Uh, we read about this as well in Jeremiah chapter 34. God refers to the same kind of thing. This was a way when two people in that day wanted to make a contract with one another, a covenant or a commitment to each other, what they would do is they would literally take animals. You see what they do? They just they'd split them down the middle. So it was quite a bloody mess. And then they would split the animals down the middle and they would put one half of the animals on this side. They put the other half of the animals on this side. And then typically what they would do is declare the arrangements. Okay, well, this is my end of the obligation, and this is your end of the obligation. And then they would basically walk a figure eight around the animals. They would interweave between the bloody parts all around them. And the idea was the seriousness of their commitment. You know, if I don't hold up my end of the deal, uh, th then you know, may the, the blood of these animals, in a sense, be an indication of what I deserve. And the idea was the gravity, the seriousness of it, uh, that they were making this commitment and kind of, we would say, you know, sometimes we, you know, signing in blood. And this was the idea here. It was a cultural thing. Thankfully, we've progressed. You know, we're, a lot of people probably weren't making many contracts anymore if we still had to do this kind of stuff. But God says, Abram, here's what I want you to do. I want you to cut covenant. So he, he cuts up these animals. He lays them out there, arranges everything for he and God, in a sense, to now make this covenant between each other that God is going to fulfill his promise to Abraham. He wants to know, God, how do I know you're going to do what you said? And he lays out all these animals. In verse 11, it tells us, however, when the vultures came down on the carcasses, birds of prey, Abram drove them away. So before they can take a, a walk through these, now there's sort of this interruption and these birds of prey come down and they're trying to feed on the carcasses of the animals there, and Abram's spending all of his time trying to drive away these birds of prey. I know that this is just a, a very fitting picture. Remember when you get into the New Testament and Jesus gives the parable of the soils, and he talks about how he says some of the seed, the first kind of seed he describes, went, he says, onto the hard path, and he says, and the birds of prey came down and they ate up the seed and they stole away the seed and then Jesus says the seed's a picture of the word of God and he says and the different types of soil are the conditions of men's hearts and he said the, and in that parable he interprets and he says and the birds of prey is a picture of the evil one who when the word of God goes into people's lives the evil one comes and he steals away the word before it can go down and settle into their hearts and no doubt here, here's God and man having relationship and fellowship, and what happens? Here comes this interruption now, trying to ruin and to mess up the covenant that's about to take place between the fellowship between God and man. And what's Abram doing? He's having to spend his time trying to drive away these birds of prey from stealing what's taking place between God and man here in the same way that we deal with the attacks and the assaults of the enemy trying to interfere and invade in our own relationship with the Lord. So here's Abram. He's spending his time driving away these uh, birds of prey all day from the carcasses there. And verse 12 says, Now when the sun was going down, and he's probably exhausted, he's been doing this all day, and nothing has happened. When the sun's going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. And behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. It seems to indicate that he begins to kind of fall into a deep sleep and sort of a nightmare starts to begin to happen now. And the Lord said to Abraham, verse 13, Know certainly 
that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs and will serve them and they will afflict them 400 years. And also the nation whom they serve I will judge and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. So God begins to speak prophetically to Abram of the future events of the nation of Israel, what would happen. Again, at this time, the first heir hasn't even been born yet, but God, who is the beginning and the end, who dwells outside of the time realm, speaks to Abram of things that are going to happen all the way out into history during the time, remember, where Jacob would ultimately take the family to Egypt where Joseph would be at and then they would end up in Egypt. And of course we know the whole story there in Egypt and ultimately under the bondage of Pharaoh and God hears their cries and comes to deliver them. And God's speaking about this to Abram saying, look, this is what's going to happen to your descendants. They're going to be strangers in a land that's not theirs. They're going to be servants and they're going to be afflicted for 400 years. But God says, I will judge that nation And when they come out, they'll come out with great possessions. And that's exactly what happened. They were under the bondage of Pharaoh. Now, interesting, when we read the book of Exodus, it says that they were there 430 years. And some people say, wait a minute, here's a discrepancy in the Bible. This says 400 years. The book of Exodus says 430 years. Well, a very simple solution to that is, if you remember, the first few years that they were in Egypt, Because of the favor that Joseph had being in the land of Egypt, they weren't enslaved and in bondage. Remember, it says after Joseph died, a new Pharaoh arose who didn't know Joseph, who was highly esteemed in the house of of Egypt, second in command. And at that point, that was when that Pharaoh's heart turned against the children of Israel and began to enslave them. We read about this in the early chapters of the book of Genesis. So, book of Exodus, excuse me. So, what obviously happened is those first 30 years weren't years of affliction. The first 30 years they were in Egypt. Uh, They were experiencing the favor still from Joseph's prior life there among them. And it was only the 400-year period where they actually were enslaved and under bondage. And when they came out, remember, they came out with great possessions as God led them out. They took many of the possessions of the Egyptians as they were on their way out. Verse 15, now as for you, God says, you shall go to your fathers in peace and you shall be buried at a good old age. But in the fourth generation, they shall return here. So again, God equating those 400 years to four generations. So in the fourth generation, they'll return. Why would it take that long? He says, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So God speaks of how for 400 years they'll be afflicted. They'll be serving in a nation where where they're in bondage and then God will bring them out. But God says the reason why it's going to take that many years, four generations, 400 years, God says is because the iniquity of the Amorites hasn't yet reached its full level. Again, the Amorites is just sort of a representation of all of the different tribes that we see referred to from the land of Canaan there. And as you read the practices of some of these Canaanite people in that day, it makes total sense why when you get to the time of the book of Joshua, where God does lead them in, and God uses Joshua and the nation of Israel to cleanse the land. And many times people look at it and, well, it just seems so harsh. Well, again, you need to realize God gave those people 400 years He let them persist in their wickedness and their ungodliness and their evil and immoral practices for 400 years until the iniquity of the the Amorites, he says, it's not yet complete. Again, God measures time morally, but God is not quick to judge. Do you see how long of a delay? Remember in the days of Moses, God gave over a hundred years before the flood came upon the earth. Here, when we read about some of these conflicts and the extermination of people groups in the book of Joshua, we think, man, that seems so severe. But see, by that point, those nations had become so evil, so corrupt. They had gone so far and God had delayed his judgment so long that at that point, Israel just became his cleansing agent And the judgment of God was a right and a righteous thing at that point. 
But God waited some 400 years until the iniquity was complete to where then when God judged, there was, should be no question of the justice of God or the fairness or the righteousness of God in what he does. And it is an amazing thing how long God will delay, but yet to realize ultimately God will judge when the time comes to a close and things have gone too far. Verse 17, And it came to pass when the sun went down and it was dark that behold... There appeared, it says, a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between those pieces. And on that same day, it says, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your descendants, I've given this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river of Euphrates, the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, again, all these different tribes as we've talked about before, representative of what he just referred to in the prior verses of the Amorites. And again, God reaffirming that this land was given to Abram. But notice what happens. After driving away the vultures all day long, here are these pieces laying there, and now the covenant is made, but notice the only person making a covenant here is God. Abram has nothing to do, really, with being other than just the recipient by faith it tells us in verse 18, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. It doesn't say Abram and God made a covenant together. The Lord made a covenant with Abram. Notice that Abram and God don't pass through the animal parts together. It says the Lord comes, representative as sort of a consuming fire, as he's referred to in the book of Hebrews. And this smoking pot, it says, this burning torch passes between the pieces as a representative of the presence of God, and it says the Lord made a covenant with Abram. Again, it was all God's grace. God was making the covenant, and God was assuring Abram, listen, Abram, this is not dependent upon you. Now, I don't know about you, but I am sure really thankful that God's promises and God's covenants are not dependent upon my faithfulness to hold up my end of the deal, or I would be very insecure. I would never be at rest. If God said, look, okay, you've believed upon my son Jesus Christ, but now you need to do your best to hold up, and if you do this, this, and this, and continue to believe, and also do this, this, and this, and hold up your end, then the covenant will stand. I would never be at rest. I would always be stressed out. But how wonderful to know that God makes a covenant by his grace. He says, look, you believe, and I'm the one, Philippians 1, 6 says, being confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. That our one responsibility is to believe, to continue to abide, to continue to trust. And how wonderful to know that God's grace is the, the, the foundation of every covenant and promise of God. And here God is the one that passes through, assuring Abram that he would take care of what needed to be done to fulfill this in his life. Well, he assures him again the land is his. And when you look at the territory there, verse 18 to 21, you take notice that what God promises is a territory all throughout the history of Israel. They never possess all that land. They, the most land that they possess is under the time of Solomon, but still they never possess all the territory that God says is theirs. I believe it's because it's not going to be until the kingdom age that Israel then will fully possess all the territory geographically that God gave to them. They never fully possess the complete amount of land that God has given to them. Now, interestingly enough, between chapter 15 and chapter 16, you now have a 10-year gap. So I say that for you to take into consideration. Abram has this promise. He comes into the land when he's 75 years old. And God multiple times has said to him, Abram, I'm going to make you a great nation. Abram, you're going to have a son. Not just a son, Abram, you're going to have multiple, numerous descendants. I'm going to make you into a great nation. And one year passes, and three years pass, and five years pass. And God keeps reaffirming the promise to him, but no evidence, no fulfillment, no son. Nothing's taking place. And Abram, no doubt, is continuing every time he has another vision or revelation from the Lord. Like any husband, he's saying, hey, Sarai, God spoke to me again. And he said that he's given us this land. And he said that we're going to have a son. He's saying that we're going to have... Well, 10 years have elapsed now. Where would you start to be after about 10 years of waiting on God's promise? 
and it still hasn't been fulfilled yet. You, just like Abram and Sarah, would start to wrestle a little bit in unbelief and doubt of, you know, is there maybe some part that we're not doing our end in this? And, and of course, this 10-year gap transpires. He's 85, she's 75. They're realizing they're getting up in age now, and they haven't yet had this child of promise. Chapter 16, verse 1 says, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, and she had an Egyptian maidservant whose name was Hagar. So they now have this Egyptian maidservant, remember from his detour down into Egypt earlier on. So Sarai suggests to her husband Abram, See now, the Lord has restrained me from bearing children. In other words, look, God promised us children, and yet God's sovereign. And God is the one in control, and it seems that God has restrained me from being able to have children. So according to the codes of the Hammurabi in this day and the others around us and what they do in the world, it is a very typical thing when a woman would be barren in that culture. If they own servants, they could allow their spouse to conceive through one of their maidservants, and then legally that child was theirs, and they would then raise up the child as their own son or their own daughter. So she begins to conceive in her mind, the Lord has restrained me from bearing children. Please, she says, go into my maid, Hagar, perhaps I shall obtain children by her. So she offers her suggestion, you know, listen, God said that you're going to have a son. God said that we're going to have a child. But he didn't say how, did he? He didn't say specifically that that meant that I needed to be the one to bear your child. So Maybe what God is doing, because God's the one restraining things from happening, maybe God's waiting for us to hold up our end of the bargain. Maybe God wants us to do something to help him out. You know, uh, God helps those who help himself, right? Isn't that in the Bible somewhere? Yeah, it's in First Fleshalonians chapter 3. It's not in the Bible. The Bible tells us God helps the helpless, Nowhere in the Bible is there anything taught if God helps those who help themselves and that God's dependent upon our help to fulfill his plan and his purpose. But many a times when we don't see God fulfilling something in our lives, we then resort to the arm of flesh and we think, well, maybe we need to do something to help God out. Maybe we need to resort to a way that the world does things or maybe we need to bring in some other idea and find some way to help God fulfill his plan. God needs our help. So maybe if we just do something and we put out our idea and we, we find a way to get God's plan to come to fulfillment. So we want to bring along God's plan because it's been 10 years. So maybe the problem is, is maybe we're delaying it because God's waiting for us to do something. So she suggests this idea now completely contradictory to the plan of god for marriage and childbearing it was cultural according to the world it was accepted among people in the society but it wasn't something that was god's design or plan it was a complete reliance upon the flesh and it says why don't you go and take hagar my maidservant perhaps i'll obtain a child by her and verse 2 says and abram heeded the voice of sarai so Abram says, uh, okay, if that's what your suggestion, I'll, you know, I, I guess I'll comply with that. And Abram goes along with the idea that his wife suggests. Verse 3 says, And Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, her maid, the Egyptian, and gave her to her husband, Abram, to be his wife after Abram had dwelt, notice, ten years in the land of Canaan. So Abram complies and he says, okay, if, if this is what you think is best, and Abram listens to his wife and makes one of the worst decisions, not only for his own life, but a decision that becomes a far-reaching problem all the way down to the current present-day problem in the Middle East because he generates an Ishmael now. And, and, and all the result, interesting, take notice, verse 2, Abram heeded the voice of of Sarai. Abram listened to the suggestion of his wife and complied with it and got into a lot of problems. Very, very important. Listen, later on, there's balance. Please, please don't misinterpret me. Later on, God tells Abram, listen to your wife. 
And there is a time and a season where God may bring his wisdom, but there are many times when husbands have made tragic mistakes because they have listened to their wives instead of praying and seeking God and listening to the Lord. She's nervous. She's apprehensive. She's struggling with unbelief like everybody else. So she proposes a suggestion in her emotional weakness, in her spiritual vulnerability. She says, look, well, maybe we ought to just do this then. Let's Let's just do this. And she proposes an idea which is a complete effort and endeavor of the flesh. It's not God's plan. It's trying to force the hand of God and make something happen out of God's time and out of God's will. And he, for whatever reason, passivity, Wanting to please his wife, not wanting to be nagged to death, not wanting mama to be unhappy and then everybody's unhappy. He listens to his wife and he makes a horrible mistake. He makes a major mistake. He heeds the voice of his wife instead of having the fortitude to be a spiritual leader and, and pray it through and think it through and say, you know what, listen, honey, that's not, that's not God's way. I don't believe, that's not God's will. That's not God's design. And instead of standing his ground, he complies, cooperates, and and goes along with it, sleeps with Hagar, and verse 2 says he went, or verse 4, excuse me, he went into Hagar, and she conceived, and when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress became despised in her eyes. So, very quickly, she conceives, the plan works initially, And as soon as the plan works and she conceives, it says that Hagar then begins to look with despisal in her eyes towards Sarai at this point, towards her maidservant. So all of a sudden, the plan works initially, and a lot of times when we resort to the flesh and we do things outside of the will of God, a lot of times initially it works out. A lot of times when we resort to doing things that's not God's way, initially there's success. There may even be some prosperity. Hey, look, it worked out. Looks like it worked. And, and, and we create an Ishmael, and initially, we're, hey, look, see that? It worked. It worked. Look at that. We, we helped God out, and look what happened. It fulfilled. It came to pass. Well, it doesn't last very long, though, because notice all of a sudden now, they're starting to become a little bit of catty, problematic problems in the household. Because now Hagar's got an attitude towards Sarai, and Sarai isn't going to deal with that attitude Quite so well, verse 5, Then Sarai said to Abram, My wrong be upon you. I gave my maid into your embrace, and when she saw that she conceived, I became despised in her eyes. The Lord judge between you and me. In other words, she says to Abram, look, verse 5, can you imagine this? She proposes the idea, he consents, he goes through with it, and then things become problematic, and she says, My wrong be upon you. In other words, she says, I'm wrong, but it's your fault. (laughs) Ever heard that in marital relationship? I'm wrong, but it's your fault. This is why guys do things like take up golf. I'm wrong, but it's your fault. And she puts the blame on him. That's why this all happened now. And and the Lord judged between me and you. So now there's problematic relations between them. So Abram said to Sarai, indeed, your maid is in your hand. Do as you please. And when Sarah dealt harshly with her, she fled from her presence. Again, what does Abram do? He still, in passivity, does not take the lead in the relationship. Instead, he wipes his hands of the situation. And because he gets a little tension and conflict with his wife, he just says, you know what, look, this is your problem. Do with it what you want. You take care of it yourself. She's your maidservant. You treat her however you want to treat her. You do it. Now, again, whoa, whoa, whoa. That shouldn't have been the approach there. He should have took back control of the situation. You know what? Listen, I made the mistake in going along with what I did initially, and I need to regain control and resolve the problem now. In the same way I made the mistake of not leading, in the same way there's a problem now, I need to take the responsibility to resolve the issue. I need to initiate the resolution for this problem that we're now facing as a family. It's my responsibility. But instead he just wipes his hands of it, and she, it says, Sarai dealt harshly with her, and Hagar, it says, fled from her presence. So what does she do? She treats her harshly and cruelly, and Hagar runs off. She flees. And what's Hagar doing? 
Well, she does what a lot of us do. She runs away from the problem to get relief. She gets treated harshly. She gets mistreated. She's dealing with a problem in her life. And it says she fled from Sarai's presence. She runs away from her problem. And listen, not to say that Hagar is innocent in the whole process. It's sad and it's tragic to consider the fact that if Abram had never gone down to Egypt, there would have never been this opportunity for the flesh there. You know, always remember that. That's what the Bible says, make no provision for the flesh. Because Abram took his little detour and walked away from the plan of God for a while, now Hagar's right there, and the devil has got a little opportunity, and there's a provision for the flesh. Abram indulges it, and now there's this problematic situation, and here is Hagar. She becomes the casualty in the process. She becomes hurt and mistreated in the process. But her error, we're going to see, is when she's mistreated, she flees and, and, and runs away from the problem. And we'll see how God comes to her and meets her and comforts her. But, but let me leave off on, on this note tonight as we need to close out our time together. The solution to problems is not to run away. Maybe you've been mistreated. Maybe something wrong has happened. Maybe something... But, but the way to solve problems is not to run away from problems. Just because you want temporarily relief. Listen, God doesn't want relief. God wants resolution. When there's problems, God's heart is resolution, not just temporary relief. Too often our intention in those times is, you know what, I'm just going to flee. I'm just going to run away. I'm going to get away from the problem. This is wrong. I was mistreated. And you know what God's going to do? He's going to come and he's going to be very tender with Hagar, but he's going to say, Hagar, you need to go back and submit yourself and resolve this situation. And you know, maybe that's just a, a word of encouragement or a word of the Lord for one of you tonight. Maybe you're facing something and you're dealing with a problem and the temptation is to run away, is to flee. That's not God's solution. God's solution is resolution. Stick it out, submit yourself, rely on the Lord, and let God orchestrate the resolution that God needs to orchestrate rather than just run away in your response to things. We'll read ahead. We'll see next week how God addresses that. Let's stand. We'll, we'll pray together and close out our time. Father, thank you for your word and for the life of Abram and allowing us to see into his life. And Lord, help us as these things in some ways at times apply directly to our lives as well. I ask that you would help us as in a sense, sons and daughters of Abram as heirs of the faith, to live lives by faith, not lives after the flesh. Help us, Lord. Help us not to do things where we rely on the arm of the flesh to fulfill the plans and the purposes of God. Protect us from those things and help us, Lord, to walk in your spirit and just to honor you and serve you in the ways that are pleasing in your sight in the days ahead. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.